Well, good morning again. I suspect you know, as I do, this is that weekend every year where we celebrate and remember and show our gratitude to our veterans. I'm going to encourage those of you who are veterans or active duty military, reserves now, to please stand to your feet for a moment so that we can recognize you and show our appreciation personally to you. Friends, G.K. Chesterton once put it this way. He said, the true soldier fights not because they hate what's in front of them, but because they love those who are behind them. On this special day, we want to express our sincere, heartfelt gratitude to all of those who have served our country and put themselves in harm's way, willingly and gladly understanding the purpose for what they're doing. We're grateful for the freedoms we continue to enjoy that have been provided for us and protected by them who have put their lives in the line of harm selflessly and consistently. We're grateful to each of you for your courage in battle, wisdom and persistence in planning, and the strength and courage to accomplish your missions even against all odds. We're thankful for your willingness to raise your hands in response to our nation's call, for your readiness to raise your right hands in oaths that are more binding than death, and to raise your hands in sacrificial service. You have served and do serve in thousands of places that no one will ever fully understand, where the snap of small arms and the crushing thud of explosives are only a moment away. President Abraham Lincoln once reminded our nation of its duty to care for those who've borne the burden of battle and for their widows and orphans. He said, nations are judged by how we treat them. We are judged by how we stand with those who've stood up for us. May God truly give us all the grace to lift up those who were strengthened in the crucible, stand with those who still bear its marks, and most of all, to never Never, never forget the debt of gratitude we owe them. Let's give another hand. Would you pray with me? Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful fall day you've given us to gather together in your most holy name. We give you thanks and praise for another opportunity to honor and celebrate our veterans. We thank you for every man and woman who has served, and we ask special blessings over each of them and over their families. We give thanks for all the different expressions of ministry here at Christ Church, and I ask that you would water and bless the seeds that were planted in recent student ministry events, and that you continue to draw the hearts of our students in Cal and in Koinonia. While we celebrate your work here, we're mindful of our brothers and sisters facing war, violence, and unrest across the globe. Please watch over our brothers and sisters in Ukraine, in Israel, in Ethiopia, and in other areas affected by ongoing conflict. We also lift up those who are experiencing conflict and unrest closer to home. To those experiencing grief, I ask that you bring comfort. To those navigating strained relationships, I ask that you would bring your wisdom and your peace. And for those who feel alone or alienated, I ask that your very presence would surround them. 
Lord, I pray that we, your people, would not lose heart as we see the very real challenges in our lives and in our world. Rather than fixating on circumstances, we fix our eyes on you, our strong Lord, and our help in the time of trouble. And we join our voices in the prayer that Jesus taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Many of the most memorable and transformative experiences of my life took place in the context of student ministry at Christ Church. As a high schooler, my faith deepened tremendously in our koinonia ministry under the tutelage of a young, college-aged up-and-comer named Tracy Bianchi. Years later, my wife and I served together as Koinonia small group leaders for nearly 10 years, from the student center of our Oak Brook campus to camp cabins in Wisconsin to the rooftops in Dominican Republic and Mexico. I can recall countless moments when God stirred and shaped both students and adult leaders alike. My mind reels to think of the many lives that God has touched and transformed through this ministry over so many years. And the fruit of his work continues to blossom today. During the last month alone, hundreds of students have participated in two key events on the student ministry calendar, Kawiyoki and Fall Retreat. With middle schoolers singing their hearts out and bouncy houses throughout the building, Kawiyoki is every bit as boisterous as the name might imply. But such an environment serves well to diffuse the awkwardness of adolescence so new friendships can take root. It's an event that makes Christ Church feel like home, so much so that many of the students this year brought three or four friends along with them who had never been here before but continue to attend now. Fall Retreat brings Koinonia students to a secluded paradise on Lake Geneva for the weekend, where they can step back from the stresses of high school life and focus on God in a Christ-centered community. Emily Maruyama, my friend who leads our high school ministry, said that the adult leaders at the retreat witnessed students asking deep faith questions and being vulnerable in ways that the leaders had never seen before. Sometimes, says Emily, our yes to Jesus comes in a single defining moment. But for others, it's a million gentle nods of the soul. Thank you, Lord, for the millions of gentle nods that you have stirred in the souls of our precious youth over so many years. And we pray now together that you will continue to stir a million more in the years to come. Amen. With thankfulness, we give in gratitude and joy. With prayerfulness, we give in sacrifice and love. With hopefulness, we give in commitment to God.
as the ushers come forward, let us continue our worship of him with our gifts and his tithes. Well, good morning again. It's me again. I'm Rick Lyman. I have the privilege with you to share together in God's holy word. Scriptures say of itself that it's, God's word is living, it's active, it's powerful. It transforms us from the inside out and it gives light into our path in life. So, friends, we're here to continue, if you've been following with us this fall, in our lengthy series simply called Wild. We're tracking as God himself came down onto earth and delivered his people, the Israelites, out of slavery in the nation of Egypt, powerfully sending plagues upon the Egyptians, opening the Red Sea with a profoundly huge miracle, sets them free, and they find themselves in this wilderness experience. Last week, Pastor Dan Meyer and Pastor Charlie Browning brilliantly expounded on one of the best-known sections in all the scripture, if not singularly the most famous they were talking to us and preaching about the all-time top 10, the 10 commandments, which you walked by on the wall as you came in here and every week we have it emblazoned there for our remindrance. 
Just a reminder, friends, these Ten Commandments are not the Ten Suggestions. They're actually things God really thinks very highly about and very strongly about. But I, just as a refresher, and before we navigate into the next passage of Scripture where God gives us some more particulars about that, I'm encouraged you to stand with me for the reading of God's Holy Word as I read afresh those very Ten Commandments. Hear the Word of the Lord. Number one, you shall have no gods before me. Number two, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven, anything on earth beneath, or in the waters below. Number three, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Number four, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Number five, honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Number six, you shall not murder. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Number eight, you shall not steal. Number nine, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. And number 10, you shall not covet your neighbor's house or his wife or male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Please join me in a moment of prayer as we invite the very Holy Spirit who inspired these words to be written and preserved over these many centuries, that that same Holy Spirit who dwells within us, whom Jesus said would be the one who would guide us into all truth. Let's ask him to illuminate his word to us as we pray. Father, we thank you that you sent forth your word, giving it to Moses in the Old Testament and the prophets, but then the word became flesh. And Jesus, you walked amongst us and illuminated God's truth and word in a way that no one else possibly could ever do. And you said you'd send your Holy Spirit to us to be our counselor, to be our guide who would lead us into truth. Lord, Holy Spirit, we invite you to help us hear the words from Scripture today not just grasp them with our minds, but to respond to them at a heart level this very day, to your glory and to your honor, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, friends, our passage for today is Exodus chapter 21 through 23, and it's where God gives the Israelites the clear life application in their culture and society of the Ten Commandments he'd just given them in chapter 20, in what we would call case law in our time. Or in other words, how exactly was God instructing the Israelites to apply the law he gave them to real-life experiences for the common good of society? That's why a quick refresher of those top ten was important to start with today. Now, those ten commandments came directly from the mouth of God Almighty, and they formed the foundation for everything else that follows in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, if we understand it properly. The summation of the moral code that God himself has given to us. Now, mind you, the last five of these commandments very specifically have victims on the other end of the sin. And thus, God is prohibiting those very things from happening. And so very often, those victims then and now are those who are most vulnerable ones in our society and our communities. Particularly at the time in history when these words were given to Moses, God gave these timeless moral standards to protect and defend those who could not protect or defend themselves. Pastor and author Adam Hamilton frames this conversation so beautifully this way. He says, the commandments then as now function as theological statements 
and a vision for authentic human living. As theological statements, each tells us something about God and God's will for humanity. The statements offer a vision for how we live, how we love and relate to one another. They help us know life's God-given boundaries. Ignore them and we cause or experience pain. Abide by them and we begin to live into God's will for humanity. Far from stifling us, the Ten Commandments are meant to keep us from harm and from succumbing to the thoughts and behaviors that enslave us and others. These particular commandments made it to the top ten list, as we're calling here today, because they address some of the key temptations or tendencies with which we humans wrestle. Of course, talking about sin assumes from the beginning that there is a fundamental difference between right and wrong. And this is a really a rub in our society today. For the past half century, the pendulum has swung so far towards tolerance of all behavior, even destructive behavior, that many people subscribe to the notion that there's no such thing as right and wrong. In our haste to be compassionate towards the sinner, which we're called to be, we have deadened our sensitivity to the repulsiveness of sinful behavior. Friends, there are some who believe the Ten Commandment laws given to Moses no longer apply in our world. And Christians, truthfully, I want to say this. Because of the cross of Jesus, that we are saved by grace, which, friends, that was the reason Jesus came to this world. So we are not any longer under the Mosaic law trying to seek salvation through it. They actually do not apply, apply directly to us in that way as our means of salvation. But the moral truth still points out sinfulness and points out our need and continued need of a savior. But we as Christians are not personally accountable to a static law that's etched in stone which has no feelings. We are accountable to the living Christ himself who laid his body down to pay the prescribed price that the law demands for each of our sins. The stone tablets of the law didn't feel it or don't feel it when we sinned, as I said, but our precious Lord Jesus certainly does feel it. It is no longer prescriptive, friends. This is very personal now. The law had no provision for forgiveness. You won't find it in there. But Jesus promises to forgive our sins without hesitation whenever we confess them to him. So this key truth is important for today. The God of heaven himself and his standard of holiness has not and never will change. He is a holy God through and through. He is immortal and immutable. Mutable simply means he will never change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But the good news of the gospel is that God himself in Christ took all the prescribed punishment for our sins every time we broke his law, took it upon himself, and he has set us free. There is a faulty notion out there in the world today that somehow God was mean and condemning in the Old Testament, but then Jesus came and mellowed out and like changed everything. God hasn't changed one bit, friends. He's the same God, but he's provided a way of salvation for sinners like me and for you through Jesus. But many of these laws that God gave to Moses and formed the Ten Commandments are not only still in effect, as we'll see, because God never changes, they're reinforced and enhanced by Jesus himself and other places in the New Testament. Listen to what Jesus says in his first recorded sermon in Matthew chapter 5, the first book in the New Testament. He says this, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. 
I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappears, he tells us when it expires, long time out, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of these, the least of these commands, and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now let's jog forward from the New Testament, early part of the New Testament, to the very last book in the scriptures, and we're going to find a similar message. Revelation chapter 21, the second to last chapter in the Bible, it says, For those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. The saved are entering into heaven. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. That's chapter 21. Five of the Ten Commandments are referenced again there. And the last chapter, he does it again. God brings it in in chapter 22. It says, Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city, God's holy city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Well, that's some pretty heavy stuff here, isn't it? Let's get something perfectly clear, though, as we dive into this together today. Let's remember that every single one of us who has trusted Jesus to be our Savior is one of those in that passage I just read who've had their robes washed clean of their sins by the blood of Jesus. In Christ, all who are in Christ have the right to that tree of life, eternal life. And your salvation and mine, an exemption from the prescribed punishment for our sins is guaranteed irrevocably by Jesus Christ himself. Rest assured, my dear friends, Jesus has done it all for us. His work for your salvation and mine is complete, it's irreversible, it's unassailable, it's settled forever in heaven. Period. Exclamation point. And as a tennis player, game, set, and match. He finished it on the cross for us. He won a battle we could never fight for ourselves. Jesus as our Savior gets us into heaven. So if you maintain your faith and trust in Jesus as your Savior, you are going to heaven. That is what Jesus is really, really good at, like everything else, saving sinners like me and like you. In fact, the book of Revelation I just quoted, I mentioned that, goes on to say in chapter 21, he says, nothing impure will enter heaven or the city of God, nor will anyone who does shameful or deceitful things, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Jesus has a book. says it right here twice in Revelation. And when we receive him, he writes our names in his book. And though all of our sins could have been held against us, Jesus says, I got them covered. They're in. This one's in. That's the surety of our salvation through grace that we have been saved through faith and this is not of ourselves. But note in these passages that five of the Ten Commandments are still fully in force, as Jesus said, until everything's accomplished. In fact, all of them were still in force. But friends, the moral code of the Ten Commandments is still the foundation that brings conviction of sin and leads people to repent and turn to Jesus for salvation. 
I believe the reason people are not looking for Jesus is they don't have a feeling of conviction about anything being right or wrong anymore. Why do I need a Savior? Everything's cool. That's a concept of universal salvation, but that's not what the Scriptures actually teach. Similarly, Jesus' distillation of the Ten Commandments into the Great Commandment, to love God with our all and to love our neighbor as ourself, remains a pointer for us to the positive practices that Jesus calls us to pursue, that we are turned from sin and toward the ways of the kingdom of God. Now, the remainder of these instructions in Exodus chapter 21 through 23 are worth our study. We need to do that. But here, it's important to set this in the part of the context it was in Israel's history. We must remember that the Israelites at that time a huge throng of probably about two and a half million people had no system of government officially. They had Moses and a few judges. They had no system of uh, police force, no army per se, no formal court system, no justice system, and no lawyers. Sounds like a prescription for mass chaos to me. So God steps in and gave to the judges appointed by Moses back in Exodus 18 at Jethro's direction a framework for how to sort out complex disputes and give his divine guidance on social matters. The subsequent civil and criminal laws given to Israel as a theocracy at that time, governed by God themselves, were specifically applicable to them and them at that time. They're not, nor were they ever intended to be directly applicable to us, the civil, civil laws. In the New Covenant, the scripture commands us to obey the laws of our land. The time Romans captured that, and I'll read that in a moment, it says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. For that, us, that means obeying the civil and criminal laws in the United States, like speed limits or paying our taxes or not stealing. Then there's also the ceremonial law, which we won't have time to go into much today. There are many, many, many chapters where God gives instructions about worship and sacrifices and feasts and festivals. But those were specifically for the nation of Israel in that time and that season until Jesus had come. Well, speaking of law enforcement, I can remember also well my first personal encounter with the law. Didn't really care much about it. I remember when I was 15 years old and just got my learner's permit. They do let 15-year-olds still do that. That's um, still amazing. Uh, but my dad took me out to drive once driving one of his cars, which had a lot of horsepower. That plays into the story. We're coming along eastbound on 31st Street here, where it crossed uh, Route 83 at that time, just a regular stoplight. I'm cruising along, doing about 45, the speed limit, and the light turns, and I'm still about 50 yards away from the intersection. The light turns yellow. So I did what any good driver would do. I gunned the car. My dad's kicked back in his seat, and we roar through the intersection. I'm doing about 60 on the other side of it, driving right past the Oakbrook Police. My dad's like, son, Yellow means exercise caution. You don't hit the gas, you hit the brake. I'm like, oh, hadn't thought of that. Well, the first month I had my actual driver's license, a few months later, I received two speeding tickets because I hadn't figured out, you know, that I'm supposed to obey two. And I realized in the state of Illinois at that time, probably still the same now, you get three in a year, you lose your license. If you're 16, you got to wait then until you're 18. I did not want to do that. So suddenly... I realized that those little numbers on that sign that says speed limit applied to me. They actually applied to me. And that little dial on the front of the dashboard that has a number, those two should correlate somehow. My driving habits changed when I had something to lose. Friends, where these books, where the books of the scripture come from, 
We must understand the light of the coming of Christ and the new commandment we discussed a moment ago given to us as his followers to love as he loves as well as in view of all the ways at this point in history Christ's teachings underlie many of the civil and criminal laws of our time. It would be a mistake to view the teachings we'll review as boilerplate to be laid uncritically on the way we handle all civil and criminal matters. They are for that time, for those people, and God has trusted to the authorities of our time to establish those things for us. Well, here's the outline of what God gives us in Revelation, I mean, excuse me, in Exodus chapter 21 through 23. He gives to them the moral, civil, criminal, and ceremonial law in this way. Number one, he gives them guidance on servants or slaves in their time. Then he talks a lot about violence, people hurting each other. And then some sections on animal control, property laws and restitution, making things right. And then a big section on protecting the vulnerable. We'll talk a lot about that today. And then guidelines on Sabbaths and festivals and ultimately that the angel of the Lord will come and guide them into the promised land. We're not going to try and tackle all of that today. Relax, you're getting nervous. He's going to be doing this for three hours. No, 30 minutes. But if I were to identify one overarching theme that covers all these ordinances we'll touch on, it would be God's desire to see his people protect the vulnerable. And he starts with servants or slavery. We're in Exodus chapter 21, he says this. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years. In the seventh year, he shall go free without paying anything. If he comes alone, he is to go free alone. But if he has a wife when he comes, she is to go with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the woman and her children shall belong to her master, and only the man shall go free. But if the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and children, and I do not want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges. He shall take him to the door or the outpost and pierce his ear with an awl, put a big hole in his earlobe, and then he will be a servant for life. What we see in this section although it doesn't sound like that, is in stark contrast to the practice of slavery in the world at that time. These Hebrew servants had some rights, not the kind of rights we want people to have, but they had some rights at that time, and they could be kept in servitude for only six years, and then they were free, unless they wanted to stay in their master's employ by free choice. Pastor Chuck Swindoll captures it this way. His, his take on this is, when the Lord spoke about the practice of slavery in Exodus 21, he clearly had the protection of the vulnerable in mind. Women were especially at risk in the ancient world. So God's directions in this passage regarding provision for female slaves and even circumstances that would bring them freedom make it clear that he wanted to protect a defenseless population. Believers today should still make it a point to protect the defenseless and the vulnerable from the cruel, the unfeeling, and the greedy. G. Campbell Morgan said it so well when he said this, a careful consideration of these laws will show that they actually in a way abolished slavery and substitute for it covenanted labor. Henceforth, the condition of slaves among the Hebrew people, if they were Hebrews, would be in marked distinction to slavery as existing among other peoples. It was the beginning, a very small beginning in a great moral movement. But then God starts to explain what to do with violent acts and violent people, and he's very specific. First thing he mentions in chapter 21, 12, he says, anyone who strikes a person with a fatal blow, kills them, is to be put to death. 
However, it is not done intentionally, but God lets it happen. They are to flee to a place that I will designate, which was called a city of refuge. But if anyone schemes and kills someone deliberately, that person is to be taken from my altar, even if they're seeking solace there, and be put to death. Murder is a big deal to God because he's the giver of life and he's not granted to us as humans under any circumstances to murder other people. Jesus enhanced and actually strengthened this sixth commandment in Matthew 5, 21. He says, you've heard that it was said in the days of old, you shall not murder. Well, of course, he's quoting right out of the Ten Commandments. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment, which we've just talked about. But I say to you, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. He ratchets it up not just from the act, but from the source to the heart. Jesus speaks to the heart. Secondly, Exodus says anyone who attacks their father or mother is to be put to death. In this context, this meant a child striking or attacking a parent with the intent to kill them, thus violating that sixth commandment and the fifth commandment as well. Thirdly, he talks about kidnapping. Anyone who kidnaps someone is to be put to death, whether the victim has been sold or is still in the kidnapper's possession. The context there is very often people were kidnapped and then taken out of the community of Israel to be sold to other nations and other people for profit, where they could gain money from that. God actually recognizes enslaving a person was not far from murdering them and puts a high penalty on this one. The fourth thing he mentions in this chapter, anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. That sounds really extreme, but put in the context, not just using a curse word, it's equivalent to a death threat, wishing or willing the demise of their parents and actually scheming about it and expressing that to them. This is truly aimed at protecting the vital foundation for orderly society, the true respect and honor between generations that God is asking us for. Next one is an interesting one, Exodus twenty-two eighteen. Do not allow a sorceress, and by implication a sorcerer, to live. Now we think of sorcery, and there's all kinds of fantasy novels and movies been made about it. It's kind of a lighthearted sort of a thing. But God says, because among the ancients, the practice of sorcery had two associations. First, it was contacting dark or demonic powers or people in the underworld trying to communicate. It still is practiced all over the place. You drive by the places all the time with the neon lights and that kind of thing. But secondly, it included altered states of mind through drugs and potions. There was understood to be a connection between drug taking and occultist practices in that time. The Greek word that we use in the New Testament, finding the New Testament for sorcery is pharmakos. Well, you can guess what word in English comes out of that. Pharmaceutical, pharmacy, spoke of drugs or actually poisons since the sorcerers typically used those drugs and then went into their trances. And then we get to some of the abuse issues that I really think the heart of this passage is about in Exodus 22. It says, do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. And then listen what God says about this. If you do that and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused. And I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. Widows and fatherless children or orphans were the most vulnerable people in the ancient world. Without protection, they are often the first to be viciously abused, taken advantage of, and treated mercilessly. This is carried through into the New Testament in James, the letter of James in chapter 1, where it says, 
pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Exodus 22 goes on to say this, in fact, God forbid charging any kind of interest on loans to the poor. I'm not reading the whole passage here. Because in those days, the financially wealthier Israelites had the practice, like a lot of other places, to charge high rates of interest to poorer people, hoping and intending that they would never be able to pay and thus they'd be able to take whatever surety they put or to enslave them. There was an evil intent behind it. Now, friends, this sort of thing still happens today in so many ways. Even sometimes close to home, a few years back, the church I was pastoring at, a woman came in just distraught one day to my office and just said, Pastor, you've got to help me. I don't know what just happened. This was a woman who had just bought a, a car. She needed to get to and from work, but she didn't know about, much about car buying. So she went to a local car dealer. I will leave the name out because they might have repented of this sort of thing nowadays. It's a long, long time ago this happened. She had gone into the car dealership and they just said, sign all these papers, we'll take care of it for you. So she signed the contract to purchase the car at an extremely high price. She signed a life insurance contract policy to protect the dealership from, or the finance company from paying it off. The interest rate on the loan was just a minor thing, 36%, and on and on and on. So I simply said, you know what, I can pray for you, but I'm going to do something else. I put on the black, a black suit like I'm wearing today, got the biggest briefcase I could find, carried it into the general manager's office of that, that store. I, I'm not a lawyer, I never have been, never said I was, they assumed I was. And I simply said, do you know how many laws you've broken by doing this? And what the penalties for those laws, I looked it all up. And oh yeah, well, I, well she, they had all these excuses, but they undid the deal. They did not want to deal with that. It's still happening today. And it makes God angry when it happens. The last thing we're going to mention here in Exodus 21 is something gets carried also into the Sermon on the Mount. It says this, but if there's a serious injury, you're to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Wow. Now Jesus brought an entirely different light on this exacting punishment in Matthew chapter 5. He said, you've heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. He's quoting this exact passage. But I say to you, remember what he said? Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. This is Jesus calling us to that higher way. Jesus changes it from revenge and retaliation to a righteous Christ-like response. Then the passage goes on to bring more social responsibility, the protection of vulnerable people in this way. It says in Exodus 22:16 and following, if a man seduces a virgin who is not pledged to be married and sleeps with her, he must pay the bride price and she shall be his wife. If the father absolutely refuses to give her to him, I can imagine why a father wouldn't do that. Uh, he must still pay the bride price for virgins. Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner for you are foreigners in Egypt, it goes on to say. Now, women were, and sometimes still are in our world, the most vulnerable people in Israel, and God seeks to protect them. Note the word seduces. If you, basically saying if you sexually violated a virgin who is not married, then you marry her and take care of her and you provide for her. No irresponsible sex. 
Friends, I'm so concerned when the moral guidelines for the sexual act is, if it feels good, do it, then there's no more moral guardrails to keep the culture from careening recklessly into abusive behaviors of all kinds. Scriptures go on to say this, do not deny justice to the poor people in their lawsuits. Have nothing to do with a false charge and do not put an innocent or honest person to death. For I will not acquit the guilty. Do not oppress the foreigner, for you yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners, because you were foreigners in Egypt. Friends, the scriptures here in so many other places, God is calling us to actively work to see that justice is done for the very vulnerable poor amongst us. And also be kind, considerate, and compassionate to foreigners or immigrants. F.B. Meyer put it this way so beautifully. He says, we wrong another not only by what we do or permit to be done, but in what we carelessly fail to do. As we come to a close today, these passages leave all of us much to think about. It certainly has me in my preparation. And more importantly, much to do in response. I love the way Eugene Peterson puts it. He says, God speaks the decisive word that puts us on our way the road, the path of life. The Bible's not a book to carry around and read for information on God, but a voice to listen to. This word of God that we name the Bible or book is not a root word to be read and looked at and discussed. It's a word to be listened to and obeyed, a word that gets us going in the right direction. Fundamentally, it is a call, God calling out to us. But sometimes, we've all done this, We've made up our mind about something we believe, we want, we covet, and we close our ears off from outside perspectives that differ from ours. We all do this one degree or another, and I know I do it sometimes, but there's a real danger in closing ourselves off from God's Word and His Holy Spirit, who always and only has our best interests in mind. Scriptures call this hardening of the heart. Reminds me of a story I read some time back professional golfer named Tommy Bolt was playing in a tournament in Los Angeles. He had a caddy that day, had a reputation of constant chatter. So before they teed off, Bolt told him, don't say a word to me. And if I ask you something, just answer yes or no. During the round, Bolt found the ball next to a tree where he had to hit it under a branch over a lake and onto a distant green. He got down on his knees and looked through the trees and sized up the shot and said, what do you think, he asked the caddy, five iron? No, Mr. Bolt, the caddy said. What do you mean, not a five iron, Bolt snorted. Watch this shot. The caddy rolled his eyes. No, Mr. Bolt. But Bolt hit the ball, and it stopped two feet from the hole. He turned to his caddy, handed him the five iron, and said, now what do you think about that? You can talk now. Mr. Bolt, the caddy said, that wasn't your ball. The question we need to ask ourselves all the time is, in what ways am I figuratively putting a muzzle on God's mouth and not allowing his counsel and guidance to reach me? Who in our lives do we give permission to speak freely to us and tell us things that maybe we don't see and we, maybe some things we don't want to hear about ourselves? Friends, if and when we're caught up in a sinful pattern of behavior, that you know in your mind is wrong. 
and against God's word and his will, but it's fulfilling some deep longing or craving that you just don't want to let go of. Please reach out for some help before that sinful way destroys your life, destroys your marriage, your family, and even your finances. Author John Stott sums it up this way. Jesus never concealed the fact that his religion included a demand as well as an offer. Indeed, the demand was as total as the offer was free. His offer of salvation always brings with it the requirement that we obey not a law, but we obey him. He gave no encouragement at all to those who applied to become his disciples without thinking it through. He brought no pressure to bear on any inquirer. He sent irresponsible enthusiasts away with nothing. Luke tells us of three people who either volunteered or invited to follow Jesus, but none of them passed the Lord's tests. There's also the rich young ruler, we all know about him, an individual who was good, earnest, and attractive in so many ways, but who wanted eternal life on his terms. He went away sad, with his wealth intact, but possessing neither eternal life nor Christ. When Jesus was wrapping up his time on earth in the flesh, he told a parable of the sheep and the goats. No time to go fully into that, we know that. He's giving us a hint to the final exam for Christians. We've passed from life to death in Christ. To, we've passed out of the judgment, the great white throne judgment, but we all have a personal audience with Jesus. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. Not about our salvation. It's about what we did in response. And he says in that passage, and I encourage you to look it up in Matthew 25, he says, blessed are you, for when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick and in prison, you came and visited me. And the righteous sheep say, when did we see you in all those ways? And then he says this key phrase, whatsoever you did to the least of these, my brethren, you were doing to me. No longer law, friends. This is very personal between us and our dear Savior. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for giving us your word to guide us and direct us. Lord, we pray that you'll fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit's power to live into, to live up to, and live out the life you have designed for us, following you, Jesus, every step of the way. In Jesus' name, amen.